It's about this time in the fall of 2004 that I first remember hearing this song. Uh, it was a song that would go on to define many relationships, both young puppy love or old people hearing for the first time. It was a deeply meaningful song, and it was a song that grew to be meaningful to me and then kind of a joke and then kind of meaningful to me now. It's a song about a guy who set out on a narrow way many years ago, hoping he would find true love along the broken road. But he got lost a time or two, wiped his brow, kept pushing through. He couldn't see how every sign pointed straight to you, or this person writing the song for. Of course, we're talking about what? Come on, you know this song. Yeah, Broken Road, Rascal Flats. Everyone's like, everyone knows. Raise your hand if you don't know this song. Come on, right? It's, uh, it, it was a very popular song, and it, was, uh, it, it actually spawned a whole, the Rascal Flats in general, I didn't get a picture of this because it was uh, difficult to find this kind of picture, but you know uh, when people wear jeans and they've got like decorative sewing patterns in this region? Those are forever known as, I know not many pastors do this on stage, I'm so sorry, but those are forever known in my world as rascal flat jeans. And so anytime we're shopping for jeans and there is decorative cowboyish stuff across the backside, I say, no wife, that is rascal flat jeans, I will never wear those, right? Because that was a bedazzled sort of thing that you did. And the rascal flats cared a lot in this song about you knowing that, hey, God blessed the broken road that led me straight to you. That was the defining song of my 18, like I was 18 years old, I was in a relationship, it was the first girl I dated, and man, God bless the broken road that led my 18-year-old heart to her. And those of you who've been married or had a meaningful relationship, you're like, wow, what a fool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Like, and here's what's interesting. Um, God also blessed the broken road that led me to the girl after her. That was our song, my second girlfriend. Uh, and then about a year after that, uh, a girl that I was engaged to for a little while, uh, that was our song. So three girls in a row. God blessed the broken road that led me to them. And I was just as much of a schmuck as that story implies when I was that age, between like the ages of 18 and 25. 25, and you know, uh, at the time, I thought the broken road looked quite a bit different. Really, it was a road being paved with addiction and womanizing and, and a lot of things forming poorly in my life. But I think what's interesting in the song is it pulls us to this emotional, I mean, you sit down, you listen to it with your significant other, you'd have this moment of like, oh, kind of like uh, Alan Jackson's Remember When, right? Remember when, like you see you listen there, kind of like, oh, oh, no matter how old you are, like, wow, I remember when, or, you know, the sound of little feet, and some of you are like, yeah, right? You're going to miss it. Anyway, uh, there's a, what is it about country music this morning? But uh, with uh, the Rascal Flats, this song pulls into this idea of, like, we want to be able to look back and say, it all worked out. Things worked out. In fact, there's a meme that I saw uh, this morning that really helps with this. This guy says, made a lot of mistakes in my life, but adding more cheese than what the recipe calls for has never been one of them. So we, uh, we want to look back and we want to be able to say, I figured it out. Things worked out. In fact, uh, whatever kind of grief you've gone through, let's just kind of touch it to home. All of us have gone through some sort of grief. When you go through grief, one of the things that inevitably is true is everything happens for a reason. One of the most frustrating things people will tell you, oh, it's okay, everything happens for a reason. 
And, and whatever it is, if you're a grieving person, um, you don't want to be reminded that everything happens for a reason because that doesn't automatically make the baby alive or that doesn't automatically make your dog healthier. That doesn't automatically make grandma not have cancer. There, there's a tension with those words. They're true. Now, let's be fair. The people who say that stuff, they're not jerks. They're not flippant. They have nothing. What else do you say? I'm sorry, this is really hard. From my vantage point and, and for most truth, that things work out. They're pulling from this verse in Romans 8, 28, and obviously heart can imply a lot with tone and when people are grieving, but Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't think Paul's talking about adding cheese to recipes in exceedingly amounts, right? But this verse reminds us, and this is why we say this, like, hey, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How do we know it all works for good? Well, we want to be able to look back. We want to be able to live life backwards. In fact, life is lived forward but understood backwards, right? That Kierkegaard quote that Ethan reminded us of, uh, reminded us of once. We want to look back and say, it all worked out. But how? We don't know. So often we don't know how things work out. I want to propose this morning that maybe things working out and us knowing how they all work out isn't really the point of believing that everything happens for a reason. Maybe it's not the point of that verse, and maybe it's not the point of the story we're about to read, that us figuring out how it all works out might not be the point, but actually the point is that God is the one who works things out, and that God is good, and that, that he's actually the one that holds our brokenness, our broken roads, our foolish relationships, our poor choices. He's actually the one that is consistent. He is God. If you would open your Bibles, we're going to be in John 6. Um, we are going to be talking about the small story that Adam kind of um, uh, blew through last week because he was covering a different context. We're going to kind of get right in the middle of that. We're in John 6, verse 15 through 21. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seats in front of you, right? But get, get the words in front of your face, because it's a good thing to be seeing the Word of God. Like we say most weeks, man, uh, my words come and go. I can have really funny memes about cheese. I can have really great one-liners, or maybe I can even unpack really well exactly what God intends you know about the Scripture. But those things are forgotten. They come and go. The Word of the Lord lasts forever. It's eternal. So let's make sure we're on the side of that. Let's make sure we're reading that. Let's read John 6, 15 through 21. This is right after Jesus fed the 5,000. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. No explanation, by the way. It's important that you remember that. John doesn't want us to know why, how, where. There's debates on, are they doing this because they're kind of starting to fall away like some disciples? Are they doing this because Jesus told them to? Because we see that in some of the other gospels. Are they doing this just because like, hey, Jesus went to the mountain, so maybe we'll try to follow him, but we don't really know. There's really no motive here. They just get in the boat and start crossing the sea to Capernaum. Assumably, maybe that's uh, them following Jesus. It, it was now dark. It's nighttime. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Verse 18, the sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. They saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. 
Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This morning, as we look at what John's trying to tell us here, we're going to understand that Jesus is God. Say, Jesus is God. Jesus is peace. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is God. Jesus is peace. Jesus is the only way. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd guide us as we read your word. We, we believe that you're in control of all things, that you have all authority, even beyond our imagination and understanding. We trust that you're working all things to the good for your glory, for our joy. We love you and want to follow you. Thank you for orchestrating it, that each of us are here watching from home. Guide us as we read your word. Amen. Jesus is God. Look back at the story. Let's talk about this. What does Jesus do? What does he say? So what's the first thing they want you to know? John's telling the story, and the first part is about who? Who's in the story first? The disciples, right? The disciples, and they're rowing, and they get out how many miles, couple miles, two or three? Have you ever rowed a couple miles? Take some work. Have you ever rowed against the wind? I kayaked against the wind in Michigan. Not, not recommended. I was actually trying to work out, and it's hard. It's a lot of work, right? And so they're going against the wind. They're going against the sea. There's this whole thing about this sea and how, how it's kind of set in a valley and how the windstorms come in. Anyone who studied this region would say, yeah, this happens. Wind comes through. It's violent. Um, also, these people are fishermen, but in general, these people weren't seamen. They weren't people who went out and just commanded the seas. They're not pirates. They're not like some uh, seafaring people. And so what they understood about fishing was for fishing, but the idea of crossing in huge storms and huge things like that, it would be a tension for them. And so they're out there, and what do they see? Jesus is what? Walking on water. You've heard this story, right? It's a big thing. Jesus is walking on water. I think it's interesting that John reminds us, hey, they're two or three miles out here. There's not some random island or sandbar Jesus is walking on. Homie's walking on water. Jesus is walking across the water. What kind of water is this? Stormy, chaotic, windy, tense. It's not this peaceful, gentle. This is a rough scene. And you know from reading the other Gospels, right? This is a tense thing. There's waves. There's, there's a lot going on here. Jesus walks on the water. Now, water in the first century, we did a whole sermon on this and all the themes in Scripture on water, and you can go back and look at that. But in general, one of the things that John assumes we know as he's writing this is that there are a couple superstitions, some ideas about water that have a lot of spiritual uh, depth to them pun intended, a lot of heaviness to them. There was a common belief uh, in first century, particularly amongst uh, the pagans, that the souls of those who died at sea lived in the waters. Uh, if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, you're fully familiar with what this could look like and what this would feel like. But that's the idea. They, Davy Jones locker, yo. Like, they're just going to come up and get you. That's, I mean, the ocean, if, if you don't know much about it, it's a terrifying place. The deeper you go, right? And in this sea, they're not, they're not these people who have scuba gear and they've just expandedly studied all of it. It's a terrifying place. People die out here. They don't understand where it all comes from. And, and they hear all these superstitions. But as Hebrews, they also had a belief and understanding that evil had power and control over these waters. Because all through scripture, you see a theme of chaotic waters having something to do with brokenness of humanity, brokenness of the world, and evil. In fact, one of the stories that helps understand this is um, when Jesus is at Gerasenes, there's a demoniac man, and uh, he, uh, he uh, is possessed, and Jesus casts the demon out, the demon called Legion. Do you know what he casts the demon out into? Pigs! Yeah, right! Crazy! And then what do the pigs do? They run off into what? Of the cliff into 
the water, the sea is a horrible case of suicide, right? And gosh, come on, that was worth it. That was so worth it. Come on. So anyway, no, but not in my notes. Uh, my, my buddy wrote a whole song on that. It's called Deviled Ham. It's about all, the, anyway, gosh, oh, so anyway, so, woo. but why did they go into the water? When you read that story, you're supposed to know, of course, demons went into the water. That's where demons go. They got to go in the water because that's where the bad stuff is. So in this story, there's chaotic waters, right? And Jesus is walking amongst them. There's already a symbol happening here. Jesus is God. He can walk over the tumultuous, the chaotic waters of existence. John's wanting to pull us to something. Do you remember? We've talked about this a ton. Do you remember who first was above, moving above chaotic waters? When does this happen in Scripture? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Tobu babohu. It's this weird phrase that's like it's a desert place, but also it's like chaotic and stormy and full of water. And it's like we don't quite know what to do with this Hebrew phrase because it's like it's creepy. The more you study and think about it, it's like this is a weird place because it doesn't have form, but also there's, there's waters and it's like a, des- a deserted place. It, it's, it's a tense scenario. We try to imagine this like peaceful artistic crafting. The very first few words of the Bible are, the earth was formless and void. Ah! Whoa! Formless and void. And the Spirit of God hovers over it. And what happens? God speaks and creates order from chaos. And he says, this is good. Over and over and over. John's wanting to pull us to that. As soon as you see this, there's chaotic waters, there's winds, there's tumultuous things going on that they can't control. They're stuck out at sea, and they look and they see Jesus walking on the waters. He's walking towards them because he's God. He's the Lord over the chaotic and dis, uh, disordered waters, hovers over it. What does he say? What does he say when Jesus approached them? What does he say? It is I. It is I. It is I. Okay, this is important. We're going to do this together. He says, it is I. In Greek, there's this phrase. It's ego ami. Say ego ami. Say it like you care. Fantastic. I felt that. That was good. Ego ami. It means I am. That's the phrase. And maybe you've heard this preached before, but it's important to think through. It would be weird for them to translate it. They saw him at a distance and he approached them and he said, I am. That's weird, and we would have a hard time reading that in English. But when you see ego on me in the Greek, you understand, yeah, that's a personal greeting. It's not like the most divine thing in the world, right? Because some other people just say, it is I, ego on me. But there's also something else happening here that John's doing. Because when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, there's another time where you see these I am phrases, where ego on me comes up. Can you think of when else God has referred to himself as I am? That's his name. That's where we get Yahweh. Yahweh, uh, Yahweh. I will be, I will be what I am, right? This whole thing, we did a whole thing on there up here about this. But he comes out in Exodus 3.13. Then Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your father sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I tell them? Because names matter. And he wanted to have a name. He wanted to be able to say, This God. Not just the vague thing of your fathers. Because there's lots of gods. Pop that bubble in your brain if you're like, oh, all these people believe in these stupid things that aren't real. There's lots of spiritual forces and gods. Our God is above them. He's in control. He's king. And so he, Moses says, what do I call him? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, 
Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is what's known as the divine name of God. It's where we get Yahweh. This is the whole understanding. When Jesus says to the disciples, ego me, right? And maybe it was Italian sounding, ego me. You know? The disciples might have just heard, it is I. But when John writes it, he's certain that the readers from here on out understand, no, Jesus is declaring something divine. He's saying, I am God. I walk on the waters. I am God. I'm the only one that controls the, term- the tumultuous pressures of life, the void, formless chaos around you. I'm the only one that can bring order to it. I am. He is God. Jesus comes to the disciples at night in the dark, walking on the chaotic waters to say, I am. There's seven I am statements in John, and uh, John wants to constantly be pulling us towards this idea, number seven, the number of divine completion. There's something here. Jesus is God. Something special here. Now, this is a turnoff for some people. See, the disciples, before Jesus spoke, they see him walking on the water, and what emotion does it say they experience? They're afraid. Why would they be afraid? Because they recognize it's Jesus to some degree, right? I mean, that's the way the story illustrates it. It's explaining what happened. They see Jesus coming. Before Jesus speaks, they see him coming, and they're frightened. When you look to God, when you acknowledge that there is something above you, it creates, it should create, a fear, attention, a reverence. Not because you're so holy and you're super religious, but because you're limited. And I think so often a barrier for all of us in following the Lord, a barrier for, for those we love from seeing the Lord, the barrier for our culture from seeing the Lord, is they don't want to look to God because you can't look to God and acknowledge that he's God, that he walks on the water, that he is. You can't acknowledge that he's God without acknowledging that you're not God, that you're limited that you don't have power. And that brings you to fear when you have to reckon. It's like every funeral I ever go to. The reason I enjoy doing funerals is at weddings, there's a difference. At weddings, everyone has an expectation. Y'all think you know how weddings should go and how marriage should go, but look at our culture. We can't figure it out. It's terrible. It's all, it's all a mess. No one knows what to do with a funeral. When you walk into a funeral, every single person is, is at their core saying, this person's dead and I don't get it. And they might have one-liners and some idea of how death works, but ultimately, we're not comfortable with death. We're not comfortable with people not existing. We can't explain it to our kids. They're not here. They're not on vacation. It's not that we're not seeing. They're gone. When we find all these cute ways to explain, but at our core, we don't know what to do with death. It doesn't make sense to us. It's a moment where we recognize we're limited. And either really we don't have as much power and control as we think, and we have to stuff it away, we have to escape from it more than that in a minute, or there's a God. I think they're partially afraid because they're recognizing more and more of his divinity, that he is God, that we are limited. And, like verse 15 tells us, they can't just enthrone him as king. They can't take him and plug him into what they want. They can't go and say, hey, uh, you're some tool, Jesus, that we can spiritually control. If we add the right Bible verses and the right scripture, and then therefore we control our culture with these specific thoughts, then we get the results we want. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You can't handle the chaotic waters. You are not, I am. In fact, Jesus is who he is always. You are who you are sometimes. You have lapses in character. You say and do things you wish you didn't. I make mistakes all the time. In fact, listen to me preach. I'm always telling you guys how awful I am because I I struggle. I, I make mistakes. I am who I am sometimes, but God is. 
He is the only I am. He is consistent. He's not some tool that we can plug into some spiritual equation. He is who he is. He is God. He walks across the chaotic waters. And he comes to the disciples declaring that he is God. And what? That they shouldn't be... He is God. Jesus is peace. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. One of the most repeated phrases in Scripture is do not be afraid or have no fear. Some people argue 365 times. I think that's a little off. It's way more than that. Um, But it's because the issue is when you look at just a word and you try to translate it, depending on what you're looking for, then you approach it with an English Western mentality of how the phrase works. When you look at the heart of someone coming and saying, hey, don't, don't fall off, don't cower in field, let not your hearts be troubled. All these phrases then count as do not fear. Side note, do you know this? If do not fear is one of the number one, arguably the number one command in Scripture, do not fear, potentially over a thousand times, do you know the number two commandment in Scripture? Behold. Or to praise or to worship. Second most command, and I think it's interesting, this is for free, but I see those as tied together, and I love teaching on it because I think it's a powerful thing. If you were just to read the scripture by the numbers, you'd say, the most repeated phrases are, do not fear, but behold, behold. You enjoy a McDonald's cheeseburger, but you behold a flame mignon steak. You enjoy light bulbs in your house, but you, in, you behold a sunset. There's something about beholding who the Lord is. And so Jesus comes in, he says, do not fear because he is peace. Let's talk about fear for a minute. All humans of all time, religious, secular, everything in between, all humans have a base tension with fear. I could talk to you neurologically about the amygdala and how the amygdala, the core function is to, uh, to lock us in some sort of fear so that we can have flight, fight, uh, re- receptors and so that we can protect ourselves, right? And we can talk about neurologically, we talk about how God designed our brains. We could talk in general about how fear is the core for most things we're doing, but in general, we could acknowledge that no matter how much we approach life, there's some base fear. And you might be the tough, tough guy, tough gal in the room that, oh, I don't have no fear. I don't care what no one thinks. I got it all figured out. I promise you that you've come to that conclusion to guard your fear. Because you, you don't want to believe you care what people think. You don't want to believe that you have fear. But all of us have something that we're afraid of. Something that governs us. In fact, it's not an unhealthy or sinful thing in itself. Fear helps postural things. I want my kids to be afraid of running into the highway because they could die, right? Fear is an important thing, but also fear tends to be a governing, controlling thing. We all have a deep fear of not being in control. We have a deep fear of harm coming to us. Catch this. In a world that tries to constantly teach and pursue that there is no God, It's just, you're just a bag of stardust that exploded. A blob of cells that evolved over tons and tons of years. And and all you have is time and chance on your side. Woohoo! Welcome to the 21st century. You happen to be evolved in the right time period where you get to enjoy iPhones and America. Hooray! Happy you. Yay, there's no God. It's just you. And you have time and chance on your side. Pitiless indifference, as Dawkins would say. This is all we have. In a world that's constantly trying to communicate there is no God, there is no miracles, Hear me, there is only fear. There is only fear. What more do you have? If there is no God, if there is no miracle, then all you have is time and chance. What prevents you from being the healthiest person in the room that still gets a brain aneurysm? Nothing, fear. What prevents you from being the person who happened to not watch their child for 20 seconds and something tragic happens? Fear, nothing, nothing, it's just all on you. 
that's this lie that comes in. And so then what do we do with that? We moved it. We got to control. I got to control. I get a scarcity mentality. It's got to be about me. I got to protect my family. Look, I kind of want to be charitable and kind, but I got to protect me. I kind of want to give, but no, I need to also protect me, take care of myself. I can give and be generous once I've protected me. I can help others once I've made sure I'm good. I can be nice to others when I feel like I'm strong, whatever it is. And then we move towards escape, whatever it is. It can be something as innocent as your job, your career, your kids. It could be something much more obviously damaging like drugs, alcohol, pornography, video games, whatever it may be. We're a culture that loves to look to our fears, to gain control, and to fight for escape. This is the lie of evil. Fear, control, escape. Hear me. It's a lie. It's all a lie. It's a lie to make you believe that it's all about you, that everything orbits you, that it all comes back to you. It's a lie to make you believe that the way you perceive reality is the fullness of how things go and you need to focus on yourself. And this story stands in direct opposition to that lie because Jesus walks on water, miraculously walks on chaotic waters that no one has control over but him. And he says, I am. A philosophical statement that means I, I was, I am, I will be, I am more than you could acknowledge, I am. Do not be afraid. You don't need to fear because I am. Do not be afraid. Look to me. Quit pursuing all your escapes, all the things you go to hide in, all the things you go to say are really going to help me take care of this thing. I can't process this death. I can't process the insecurity I feel at school. I can't process that I can't figure out my math assignment. I can't process the struggles of my relationship. I can't process how much I constantly turn to porn. I can't process how much I hate getting old and how much it makes me feel sad. I can't process the pain going on in my loved ones. Jesus steps in and says, I am. Do not be afraid. Because he is God. He is our peace. And what happens to the disciples? He says this in what? They gladly welcome him into the boat because he is peace. It doesn't need to directly say that he is peace there. It's implied, and John unpacks it later. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Someone needs to write that down. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, do I give you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't be afraid, because I'm giving you my peace, because I am. John 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is God. Jesus is peace. Third, Jesus is the only way. Read this story, verse 20. John 6, verse 20. But he said to them, It is I, ego me, I am. Do not be afraid. Verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Jesus speaks and it is good. Do you see the, do you see the connection to Genesis 1 here? Jesus speaks, now they're glad. They're afraid. Ah, waters, demon, God. I don't know what to do with everything that's going on around me. Then he speaks and they say, oh. I can be at peace. We can gladly welcome him into the boat. Then what? They gladly welcome him into the boat, and immediately, whether that is poof, or whether that's, I, I don't know, I don't know. And John doesn't want us to know, right? I hear a cartoon, right? All of a sudden, like, like Popeye eats spinach or something, then, right? But who knows? They gladly welcome him into the boat, and immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. They got to where they were going. How did they know? How did they know where they were going? They're rowing out several miles. 
They're seeing all around them, man, we're stuck. Winds, potentially a storm, depending on the language, how you read it here. There's a lot going on. Jesus is walking while there's these spiritual things going on. How do they know where they're going? How can they get there? Jesus knew. Jesus was with them. Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know where you're going? How will you know if you get there? When I think about God blessing the broken road, and I make fun of that song, you know, uh, now that song means something a little different to me because I, as I was playing it over in my head today, I was thinking, man, that really is something that I would just say really defines a pattern of worship for me. Um, I don't have time to tell you the story about how Nikki and I came together. It's the best story I have. And it always stand to remind me that God loves me and I don't deserve it. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but also I was on the phone with a guy earlier this week, a guy that knows me as Slug, because that's what everyone knew me as in college. Uh, I was calling him about some, some stuff. For, he's a counselor, and I was interested in some of his thoughts on uh, how he pursued counseling academically. And, and so I was calling to talk to him. And it was so funny to have this moment of like, this guy and I, we... We have no idea who each other is anymore. In his mind, I'm like dorm room slug womanizer who like just is absolutely against Christian ministry, thinks all traditional churches are just ruining the West, like all these awful things. That's all he knows of me from 15 years ago, right? He has no idea, like really. I mean, he sees it on Facebook and stuff, but how much do you really know? It's, I mean, it's such a wild thought to him that I'm married and not a womanizing jerk, that I have five kids, that I... Get this, I'm a pastor at a, at a traditional Southern Baptist church. How did that happen? God. God knows. God sees. How do I know where I was going? There's so many times I thought I knew where I was going. I was going to be a professional magician. I was good at it. I was touring. I was going to have all the ladies. And I did, and it was great. It was killing me. It was destroying me. And I really thought I figured out. In fact, Nikki and I knew we were going to Alaska. I thought for sure we'd go to Canada and be missionary church planners. I knew we'd be house church people. We'd never stay in this city very long. We couldn't wait to get back to Springfield. Here we are. I might die in this city. Here I am, landlocked forever. Jeff City, God bless the broken road. He brought me here because God is the one who knows what he's doing. Because he is God. How do you know where you're going? How do you know you can interpret these things? Jesus is God. Jesus is peace. Jesus is the only way. Catch this. If you could walk on water, you can walk on water, and you could immediately get to where you're going, why would you call out to the disciples? Why, why would you, why wouldn't you just, hey, over here, boys, keep running, yeah, you'll get there. I'll even calm the storm. You come on, keep her. Why would you go to them? Because God's goal has always been Emmanuel. Because God wants to be with you. I'm going to say it again in case you miss it. God is coming to be with you. God wants to be with you. And Jesus approaches them, and they gladly welcome him into the boat. They gladly welcome him into the boat. And then they get where they're going. Jesus stoops down. He doesn't need the boat. He doesn't need to row. He can get them where they're immediately going. Jesus stoops down as they welcome him in. And he's in the boat with them. He calls out to them. Isaiah 43, 2 would have to be echoing in these young Hebrew men minds. They had to have been thinking about this. I can't say that for sure, but come on. Isaiah 43, 2. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. I will be with you. Notice the problems in this story aren't resolved by their rowing, by their seafaring skills, by their fears, by their focus on the wind and storm. They get stuck. Your perceptions, your understandings of the things around you, they can't save you. In fact, you can do all you want. You can work hard. You can gain all the knowledge. You can hedge your bets. You can focus on all the things you need to focus on. You, you can really have all this willpower and self-discipline. You can do all the right things. You can, you can watch all the right podcasts and listen to all the right people to tell you all the brain neurology and all the new sciences that really make you figure your life out. And it might work until it doesn't because none of those things can save you. Jesus is the only one who can save us. We look to Jesus, not ourselves, and we gladly welcome him in because we can't control the storms. We can't control the chaotic, the chaotic waters of life. We aren't God. We can't bring peace in of ourselves. We can't define and pursue the way ourselves. Romans 5 says it like this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hear me, there is a God. And his desire is to be with you. The only way that happens is through Jesus. Jesus is the only one that came and lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death that you should have died, so that he could resurrect and cover for your sins, to atone, as the Bible would say, so that God could be with you, so that you could have a right relationship with him. Jesus knew that he was coming as God in the flesh. Jesus knew that he was coming to bring peace by his death, by his life, by his resurrection. Jesus knew that he's the only way, and he tells us that. I want to ask you this morning, who is Jesus to you? There's some slides that might guide this, but, but I want this to ripple as we start slowly moving towards a time of response. Who is Jesus to you? Are you gladly welcoming, it, welcoming, welcoming him in? What does that look like? Maybe Jesus is someone distant that you control, just a religious something or someone. And, and, and be honest, maybe the Spirit leads you to think about that. And you realize, man, I, I really just believe that I craft and control this. Like verse 15, I'm trying to put him as king so that I can control how I think the world should go, what's needed. I'm in control. And I'm distantly just trying to control him. Or whatever. Maybe he's not even a someone to you, he's just a something. Maybe Jesus to you is someone or something you see near you, but he's not with you. He's not guiding you fully. Maybe your focus is on the wind, the storm, the fear, the circumstance, the rowing, your efforts. You keep getting stuck. Why is Jesus not with you? Is it, is it pride? Is it fear, shame, guilt? God loves you. He wants to be with you. And if you want proof of that, keep reading John. This is what Jesus is telling us every week, that he's come to be with us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him. Maybe Jesus is still someone distant to you because you're so focused on the guilt, fear, shame, control, the escape of your life. Or maybe you see Jesus as someone who's with you. He's everything. He is God. He is peace. He's the only way. Jesus is telling you right now. He speaks to us the same thing he said to the disciples. It is I, I am. 
do not be afraid. Hear this this morning. You can't ignore the storm and the winds in your life. I'm not telling you to ignorantly just say, oh, I don't care. Everything's falling apart. This is fine. Who cares? I'll sip my coffee and be happy. No, no, no. You can't ignore the junk in your life. Why should you? You should grieve. We'll find out later that Jesus wept, that Jesus cared about the brokenness around him. (coughs) You can't ignore those things, but maybe you don't fully understand the wind and storm around you. Maybe your desire for control, fear, escape has blocked you in your amygdala and you're completely stuck in fight or flight. You have no idea. You can't even reason what God's doing. Maybe you need to open your hands to Jesus and look to him. Say, hey, reveal to me, Lord. Hear him speak over you. I am. Do not be afraid. You can't ignore where you need to go. You got to do stuff. Tomorrow's Monday. Uh, A lot of us are off on so, But uh, the next day's Tuesday. You got to get stuff done. You got a whole list of things to do. And if you're a small business owner, you might even work tomorrow, right? But it you got a list, you got to do it. And if you're, whatever, you're at home, you got the baby, you got kids, whatever, you got, you got aging parents, whatever it is, you got stuff to do. You can't ignore that. But you also can't be consumed in fear by that. How do you know where you need to go? How do you know what you, what steps is next? I mean, planning's wise, but how do you look to Jesus? He knows. He's with you. He says, I am, do not be afraid. You can't ignore any action you need to take because stuff has to get done. But how do you know what you need to do? We look to Jesus. Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. Aside from my notes, I just can't get past this week when I read this story over and over and over that they were afraid. Jesus spoke. They welcomed him in the boat and they got to where they were going. And, and I see this such as a story of life of, man, how do you know where you're going? You've got all these plans. You've got all these ideas. How do I know where I'm going? I think I've got things figured out, but maybe I don't. How would I know? Jesus knows because he walks over the waters. He's the one that says, I am. He knows. If he's God, therefore he is peace. And if he is peace, and we know that from his life, death, resurrection, from his own word, then he must be the only way. Therefore, I have to look to Jesus. I have to open my hands. And as I scratch my head as a shepherd, as we talk in our shepherd meetings, how do we make this? How do we, we, we can say, look to Jesus. We can say, open our hands. But it's so hard because there's so many applications here. I would encourage you during this time to simply look to Jesus uh, as what the disciples did. The disciples trusted in Jesus' actions and his words. They trusted and somehow, somehow, It combated their fear. And it got them where they needed to go. This morning, some of us just need to open up and say, I I don't know where I need to go. I don't know what I need to do. But I've got fear. I've got control. I've got issues with, with trying to escape. I need to give those things to Jesus. As Nathan comes and plays, think about that as a response. And church, I want to put that on you. As, as a church, are we a church that is constantly striving to say, hey, we look to Jesus because he is God. We look to Jesus because he is peace. He's the only one that can bring a right relationship between God and man. He's the way, the truth, and life. We look to him because he's the only way. Or are we just like everyone else? We're just better at hiding it. We're using our religion to hide the fact that we're fearful. We're escaping. We're trying to have control and power trips. As a church, we want to open our hands and say, we look to Jesus. It starts and ends with Jesus, just as we sang, you are the first, you are the last, you are my future and my past. First Peter says it this way. We're going to leave this verse on the screen for just a little bit as we respond. 
1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The story reminds us that he cares for us, that he's with us, and that his desire is to have a right relationship with you. He is peace. He is God. He is the only way. As you stand and as we respond, I would encourage you just to have this posture, to open up. Say, what fears are controlling me? What escapes am I still escaping to that I don't trust God with? How am I focused on my own rowing, my perception of the storm? Let this be a time to release. Hear the Lord speak to you now. Jesus says to you now, I am. Do not be afraid. He is God. He is your peace. He is the only way. As you respond, if you need to pray with someone, I'll be down here. We've got other people in the church that will be uh, along the walls in the back. Carrie's back there. People around to pray with you. If you feel, hey, I just need to pray. I don't even know how to respond. I need to pray. Maybe you need to give your life to the Lord. You say, hey, I want to look to Jesus. I just don't know how. You tell me to trust in him. I don't know how. I want to give my life to Christ. I don't know how. Maybe you're watching from home and you need to respond somewhere. Write it in. We'll be praying for you. Let's pray together as we respond. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this story that so powerfully communicates who you are in Christ. I pray by the power of your spirit that you would move in us as we listen to you. May we believe that you are everything beyond all of our categories. May we not have fear because we trust in you. And I pray that you would guide us where we need to go. We trust in you. Thank you for your love for us. May we